Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Buddhaṁ dhammaṁ saṅgaṁ namasāmi So Tonight being the, what's called the Marka Puja. Puja is a kind of honouring. Marga is the name of the part, month of the, of the season in the Buddhist calendar. So this is the honouring, occasion of honouring in the month of Marga. And what it's honouring is um, several events, but uh, basically big one is the uh, gathering of 1250 Arahants who came to see the Buddha, Lord Buddha, um, apparently, you know. So anyway, you get a sense of some occasion when these great beings got together. And, uh, you know, why do Arahants go, you know, what do they get together for? What do you do? Is Arahant, you go and chat, uh, play pool? <laughs> I would, you know, <laughs> drink tea, whatever you... No, they, they think, well, what do you want to do that for? <laughs> it's just the honouring, because I think honouring is part of what... Um, is a particular energy in honouring, a certain sense of uh, commemoration, a certain sense of establishment, a certain sense of, um, you know, prioritising, you might say. We all, in some way, live very personal, mundane lives of, you know bathing and cleaning up and tidying and this, that and the other. And then also we like to prioritize certain our values, our aspirations. We put them in a special place and you want to have some time and you focus on that. And uh, there's a certain shaping that occurs with that, isn't there? If we don't have something we honor, then we, our lives are kind of what they're shaped by, basically uh, economic concerns, uh, uh, domestic issues, um, health, um, job, so on. So we tend to form that particular shape. We are drawn along those channels, those lines of interest and concern, and the good results and the bad results that come from that. And that is going to shape our intentions, going to shape what we come into contact with, it's going to frame the way we give attention to things. And these three qualities, or these three channels, attention, intention, and contact, are the basic activities or structures that occur in the mind, you know, that keep us, you know, focused, uh, moving along, uh, give us a sense of how well we're doing. They, they create the sense of I am, I am doing something is the intention, you know, I'm going this way. Um, attention is where I seem to be and contact is what, what seems to be landing on me, you know. So attention is going to be the workplace or nature or, you know, family situation or meditation or you're in that particular context. That frames, you know, that has effects, doesn't it? Where we are, what our attention attention frames up has definite effects on our moods, on our energies, on our, whether we feel comfortable or busy, relaxed or responsible. Hmm? So this is a big thing, actually. Contact, 
It means the stuff that's, that lands on us. It's generally in monasteries, it lands quite softly, quietly, you know, gently. That's where nice places to be, meditation halls. If you're out in the city, it's going to be like buckshot, you know, just stuff pinging, peppering, you know. <laughs> All kinds of stuff just coming. Most of you just keep screening, you just keep pushing it away to stay focused. The stuff you just don't want to see, you keep pushing away. The idea of meditation, well, you don't have to do that. You know, you can just kind of open. And there's something very lovely about that, that ability to just open and be receptive because there's nothing much, nothing harmful, nothing abusive, um, nothing exciting, you know, so you can just kind of be quite soft and open. So the, 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 where, we, where we are attending or where we, our attention frames and then it gives, the contact comes within that. So ideally, you know, situations where your intention can be very clear and straight and unwavering, you know, and where your attention is on things that are calming, peaceful, um, gladdening, and where the contact is something that encourages you to be open and sensitive rather than shielded and defensive, these are all going to have very good effects. Now these three are three dominant aspects of what's called nama, the naming aspect of our of our of, of our experience. Naming is a kind of very loose way of putting it, but it's the sense of um, you know, the knowing how how we how we know where we are, how we know what we're doing. You know, and all that's affected. And this is a big part of um, practice because it's actually with the calming and the ceasing of the afflictive energies within that um, that the mind is liberated from continually being riveted by its environment, strung out with its environment, uh, hung up, trying to get somewhere with it, uh, trying to defend itself, trying to find a place. All that stuff goes on when the nama is hooked up to the mundane world. Now, I don't know if you got that, really. That's a bit quick, maybe. <laughs> yeah. You know. So, the, you know, very loosely speaking, the, the nama thing is the very much the sense of, of um, myself, the subject, and rupa is the, the forms I'm coming up against. It's the, it's the this nature of the subject is this, this um, engaging, um, located, I'm here, you know, I'm in this particular place, I'm doing this, this is happening to me. All that's nama, yeah? yeah. So naturally, the, the constituents of that are quite important. What we come into contact with, what our intentions are. And... You know, there's there's the making that agreeable and pure. You might say that it's it's free from abuse, free from uh, fear, free from regret, free from craving. You know, that's a big part of the practice. The point when we when it's steady enough, we can begin to recognise actually there's nobody in this. You know. <laughs> you know, instead of it always creating an I am, it's just contact, sensation, intentions, you know, there's nobody in them. This is right, really quite a sort of beautiful paradox, these 1250 beings who'd accomplish this were like 1250 nobodies, you know, no, no sense of I am in there. 
And, uh, you know, one of the features of, of, of um, one of the interesting features of Buddhist um, kind of hierarchies, you might say, in terms of spiritual attainments, is the higher up you go, the less and less you're there. It's the only hierarchy that the more, the higher up you go, the less important you become. <laughs> you know, if you get to be a real nobody, that's like almost showing off, you know. <laughs> you know, he's really a nobody. And so, I think, wow, he must have really got there then, you know. So it's the only, it's the kind of thing where actually everybody's looking for retirement. As soon as they start, they're looking for retirement rather than promotion. So I remember with uh, Ajahn Sumedho, his last year or so, he was kind of kept emphasizing there's nobody really here, you know. There's just this form, there's this Sumedho perceptions, there's Sumedho activities, there isn't anybody. This is my final blessing, is to, is to, keep, is to keep disappearing, you know. To not, you know. So he'd almost like try to, you know, put himself into that place where he just let go of everything and just be there. And, um, you know, so, and then Ajahn Chah, again, said no Ajahn Chah. And, uh, and recently, Lungtar Mahabur passed away, but they didn't even say he passed away, just said his body died because he'd already gone <laughs> years ago. <laughs> you know, it was almost like a, he didn't say his body died because he didn't say he died because it was assumed he, he was there to die in the first place. So it would have been a bit of an inaccurate thing. He said his body packed up. He already gone. You know. So, but then you notice actually when you have the privilege to be with any of these any of these beings or you know anyone who really developed a lot of um, uh, spiritual strengths and practices is enormous presence. It may not be a person there, but there's something very powerful there. So it's like the irony is that the, the ceasing or the, the extinction, you could say, or the ceasing, isn't quite what you imagine ceasing to be. It's not like everything packs up, is empty. It's that certain qualities are like iron, like iron it's like you're ironing out the folds, you know, you take a sheet and it's all screwed up. That's like an average person's mind. <laughs> all kind of knots and tangles and folds. And you start smoothing it out. Yeah? So it's, it's almost like, first of all, the, the more defiled, really rough stuff starts to go down. The stains come out. And then the more you smooth it, it's like the personality elements start to kind of become very soft and malleable and smooth out. Till you know, when there's nobody there, then that, that sheet is really very good state, you know. It's like it's really spread out, it's it's not crumpled up, and you can you can feel that. Certainly with uh Tanajan Chan, Chan, remember when I first met him, he was quite a small person by by Western standards. He you know you know, I think that probably you know, you know, sort of five foot four, five foot five, something like that. Not very big at all. And yet, you know, imagine Samadhi was sort of six foot. Imagine Pabaka was like six foot. So big, big men. But when they stood beside him, they looked like little boys. They didn't look like it, but you felt this incredible 
tower, this mountain, in this in this little physical body. But the physical body wasn't what you could you just feel this incredible magnetic, something like a magnetic field of uh, tremendous depths, agility, humor, um, and also trackless you know like where is this person you don't you don't find something you can get hold of every time you try and you know you kind of not be there it's difficult to put that in words but um it was like somebody who didn't bounce you know it's like somebody didn't didn't react it wasn't like you you did something you 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 know you, you did something and you could see him kind of caught or reacting to it it just passed straight through like, where did that one go? People would ask him questions. And you can see this question kind of come over and it would just sort of dissolve <laughs> somewhere. <laughs> and he just listened to it. And, think, and, you, and, you, and you saw this question disappear and you thought, oh, that was a stupid question, wasn't it? Because it, it started to unravel in, almost in midair. And he'd go, and then he'd answer. And what he'd answer wasn't the question. But the questioner, he's saying like, oh, you know, um, too much thinking uh, it, it doesn't do you good, you know. <laughs> it's actually, it's almost like the question just disappeared and you're tuning right into the mind of the question or picking that up. And he couldn't even speak English, which perhaps was an advantage because he didn't get caught up by the words. You could just feel that person's energy, that person's mindset, and that's what he addressed. And it's, um, you know, I mean, it's, it's, of course, endearing and lovely to, to remember such beings. And um, also notice the same faculty in Ajahn Sumedho, as, as of course, he's developed over the years in terms of, you know, uh, that presence. Um, but really looking at it, you recognize that all these, what are, all these things are pointing to a certain ceasing of something, you might say, or an or a ironing out, a smoothing out of something, allows something to, to be stronger and greater. That's why these words can be difficult, you know. But you notice that whenever anything that you're caught with stops or ceases, if it's done in the correct way, your awareness is brighter and stronger. That's the whole point of it. Whenever one of your crinkles and tangles and knots comes out, it's not like there's a hole there. There's a sense of strength, steadiness, purity, calm. Yeah. So the ceasing of one thing reveals or straightens out this primary quality of awareness. The mind is bright, poised, stable, tuned in. That's the process. The ceasing is a ceasing like of a fold, the untangling of a knot. And what's what remains or what's revealed through that is the strength and purity of awareness. Yeah. So awareness is like the non-behavior. There's the mental behavior, thinking, emotions, reactions, responses, and there's awareness which is just like the, the non-behavior. It's like um, just the, the, the tuning in, 
And there's an energy with that. So we can talk about, use the word awareness, it sounds very much like a cognitive faculty, which has this knowing quality to it. It also has an energy to it. So, you know, which means it's still, it's, it's alive, it's vibrant, it's bright. Those are energetic references to that experience of awareness. And we all have this. But it's rather like, you know, water. You can, you can be so much stuff floating around in the water that you don't really notice it. You're noticing the old tin cans, the bits and pieces that are floating around in the river, in the water. And awareness is like this stream, you know, rather like that energy to it. And you can, that's why when, when honoring occurs, it's like what you do is you, you're tuning all your, your thinking, your aspirations, and impossible, your bodily presence into the same thing and lining up these energies in a, in a gesture of this is what I hold valuable, this is what I wish for, this is what I aspire to. And it does have this centering effect. There's an energetic effect, not psychological it's psychological and energetic. So you know, often why people would often go to visit um, people like Ajahn Chah is just to be in the presence would start to just sort your head out without we said anything or not. You know, you might just sit there and, uh, you know, you might hear one phrase that suddenly, oh, yeah. But it was like just being there, it was like being in the presence of something magnetic that just started to, sort of straighten your energies out. Mm. You know, you can almost feel that effect. And uh, it's like when it, with Ajahn Chah, for example, it's very difficult to kind of sometimes say very much because everything, you start to say something, you've just seen this twittering in your brain, you think, what's that? <laughs> doesn't seem worth saying anymore. <laughs> just because you're in this presence and it starts to kind of affect the, the thinking faculties. You just don't feel like, God, that's some stupid twaddle I'm going to come out with. So, oh, yes. You just want to sit there and quieten down. So there's a calming effect on the mind. Because as the energy of awareness builds up, one of the things that goes, first of all, is completely um, you know, um, disordered thinking patterns start to, start to get leveled out. Yeah. So thinking becomes clearer. And then eventually thinking stops. So this is the, when we tune in, this is the process of samadhi. As you're tuning in, first of all, it's like your, your, your really irregular thinking, hindrances and uh, congestions in energy and thinking start to kind of not get fed anymore because the energy is straightening. And these, so as it straightens out, you get this, and you can't think you know, stuff. And then eventually, you know, you stop thinking altogether. You don't stop thinking because you're trying to stop thinking. It's not trying to stop thinking. It's just like you get to a, to a you tune into something and you just don't, you know, you <laughs> stop thinking stops. It's like a kind of magnet that, that pulls the energy down, you know, from this kind of high-pitched, rabid kind of nattering that goes on. It just gets pulled down, stepped down, steps down, but it strengthens, and you just 
stop thinking. So this is the experience of samadhi. And, you know, in the sense of the, the, uh, the gathering, you know, when people are tuned in in this way, it has a, has a builds up a particular energy. And certain great beings can have that same effect because they, they have this, carry this with them. So people like to go and see them just to, just to feel themselves getting, picking up the juice, you might say and uh, getting sort of tuned in and calmed and lifted up. Um, and it certainly has a palpable effect if you, if you can tune into it. And that's really one of the main purposes of Sangha. It's like an attractor, an accumulator of aspiration energy, of commitment energy, of um, application energy, of renunciation energy, of restraint energy, of kindness energy. All these things are not just ideas. They're, they're palpable energies. You, know? you, you develop them, and you get a group of people developing together, you build up a big charge, and it starts to straighten you out. You know? It's like when you get a, you know, a group of monks living together, and when you think of it, you know, you get a group of, of men living together. What do you think is going to happen? Ordinarily. Probably start fighting. <laughs> Quarreling. Chasing women. You know, all kinds of, actually monks don't do that. You don't have to, you don't have to control them. They don't do that. <laughs> you know, and it's wonderful because... You know, you, you don't have to kind of keep policing people. People just basically tune in and, and they're held by the, their own aspiration, connects to the aspiration body of the Sangha, and they feel this is what they, you know, they start to do it that way. And this is c- kind of, you know, what the training is about in a certain sense. It's like we don't, some people study a bit, sometimes study a lot, but, which is all good stuff. But something just about being in that aspiration, that commitment, that ethical and uh, meditative field that has a strengthening effect. And so you arrive at a kind of harmony comes in a group practices, which is extraordinary because these are personalities who are wildly different in many ways. You know, generally at Chittivivek, there's at least eight different nationalities, you know, <laughs> cultures, languages going on. See, and people with very different backgrounds and so on. So you, on a personality level, it's quite different. But on a, another level, it starts to unify, it starts to harmonize. There's always snags here and there. Snagging, you know, on our personality levels. But then when we come meditate together, you build up this sense of, of another uh, shared field energy, samadhi energy. And this is the point, uh, I mean, one of the main th- points of, uh, of what Sangha's about. I find this really interesting because, uh, you know, basically, um, I guess myself never really wanted to be that much part of a group 
fundamentally, if you know, if you're around in the probably even more now, but you never trust groups. Yeah. After you know, you get that because what do they generally mean? It generally means some kind of indoctrination, uh, conformity, um, towing party lines. Um, Somebody's going to be manipulating you. You know. So you don't trust politicians, you don't trust businessmen, you don't trust the boss, you don't trust <laughs> anybody who's, who's head of some corporate thing because they realize they, the feeling is they're going to use you to get their own aims and they're going to manipulate you. And I would say that's a fairly um, standard impression people of my generation and I imagine it's very much the same. Didn't want to conform, you know. Conforming is for ninnies, idiots, and um, you want to be non-conformist, more truly yourself. So I think it's quite extraordinary that um, from that, and through no coercion at all, you know, very much voluntarily, very much, you know, moment, day at a time, one finds oneself sort of in in sangha, which is in some ways extremely conformist. All these rules and protocols you have to keep and uh, and quite distinctly formed, you know, like we're wearing the same robe, they're following particular protocols, routines, extremely conformist on some levels. You know? yeah. And yet you find, you, you know, it's okay, it's not... Partly because the whole thing is supervised by... Uh, Vinya that we're all a training system that we're trying to follow, but fundamentally it's supervised by our sense of honor, personal honor and integrity. That's what it comes down to. And the desire for truth, for purity, for truth. And without that, it wouldn't work at all. I mean, no matter how many rules you create, you look at the uh, government. There must be, I don't know how many laws, how many bylaws there are, and laws, and people are breaking them all the time. People are fiddling their taxes, speed limits, uh, parking fees, burgling houses, you know, nicking stuff. <laughs> That's all these laws and rules. <laughs> and you've got a police force and punishments and stuff trying to keep it together, and people are still breaking it all, you know, all the time, aren't they? Because there's no sense of aspiration and honour in it. <laughs> it's just punishment and what you can get away with and some sense of shame probably. You know? But in the Sangha you can have something whereby if it's really working, if there's a common aspiration, a common sense of honour and trust, you know, there's no policing. There's, um, you know, people breaking a rule is like, um, I... Um, you know, I somebody gave me a bar. Somebody gave me a bar of chocolate with some nuts in it. Afternoon, I didn't eat it, but I received it. Well, I mean, you know, uh, that's probably not such a big um, offence. You know, it's like uh, compared with, say, um, you know, bank robbery, uh, a bit of petty larceny, um, fraud, embezzlement, rape. You know, um, which is sort of like out there <laughs> apart from you know receiving a bar of chocolate with nuts in it 
uh, in the afternoon and, and, and not eating it, but just even touching it isn't really such a big thing. And yet we feel a sense of, well, I should be more clear about what I'm doing. Hmm? So we recognize that's a sort of certain failing, perhaps, in real clear mindfulness. And that's the level we're dealing with. <laughs> you know. So it's amazing because there's no real punishments and there's no nobody no policeman and, uh, and yet just held by the sense of honor and integrity yeah. I don't want to make it sound like nobody ever blow, makes a mistake or blows up or loses it you know that's certainly the case and yet you know what holds it together? What I'm saying is, when we when we we do blow it, but what when we what holds it together is really not even the rules, but a sense of honour and integrity. And you can get really picky about particular vineyard rules and argue and quarrel about, you know, or get confused, speculate about particular interpretations. But one of the things that Ajahn Chah is saying, somebody said, uh, you know, about vineyard, and he said there's actually only one thing in it. It's called hiriotapa, conscience and concern. Conscience in terms of your own mind state and then concern how I'm affecting other people. That's it. That's the vineyard. That's the whole training system. And that's what holds you together. So that sense of, and then we honor that, you know. So you don't just do it, but you, you feel the quality of that and the beauty of that and you start to see the results of that. Think, hey, this is, you know, really something to tune into and let one's energy accommodate that, you know. Let yourself take that on, not just as an external thing, but this living in that way of, of uh, respect and um, integrity, checking out when am I, you know, trying to, you know, manipulate things or put pressure on things or slip out of things, you know, nip, you know, make an excuse and dive out. And, hey, you know, I don't like that. I don't like that cutting core. I know what that feels like. I don't like that. That's not good energy. It's not that nice, straight, steady, grounded stuff that I feel lifts me up. Because it does. It has this uh, empowering effect. Sila. Reality, and it's not obedience to rules. It's about a principle of of conscience and concern for oneself and for others. And then the samadhi or the practices of meditation then build up that that energy, that quality. So you find that you just sit there in in a, some state of kind of a, of a pure mind, with thinking fades out and with that and then some of the the these subtler impressions of oneself also start to just kind of fade out you know you know, maybe you just feel like there's a body here or a, a kind of an energy here so these are ways in which the 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 contact impression of oneself starts to which you know lose its intensity and I would imagine that, you know, well, I don't just imagine, I know that uh, 
for in the early years of the training when one hasn't trained, this impression of oneself is extremely um, strong and uh, etched. You know, it's emotional tones, it's mood tones, it's a sense of need or a sense of not good enough, or it could be terribly dark experience, this sense of oneself, why a lot of people don't want to meditate or can't, just to suddenly feel all that is just, is too dense, it's too... But the more you meditate, actually that impression of yourself becomes less, it kind of becomes misty, you know, and not so deeply etched. There's just the knowing, awareness, yeah. And in the interim, you know, there's generally, you know, we come into that and then some part of me starts happening, some little tangle of, of worry or uh, craving or negativity. Okay, there's that bit. And you just start holding that in awareness, massaging it, loosening it, breathing through it. Not, And it's very much like putting this, this energy, this aspiration energy that you've built up, just bathing you're not trying to figure it out. You're not trying to make it go away. Just holding it in that particular, in that particular energy, and it starts to dissolve. This is the way it seems to me. So when we, you know, on the macrocosmic, on the larger level, then that's, you know, we get a tradition of nobodies. <laughs> you know, the, the more nobodies there are, the stronger it gets. The more people have kind of cleaned out their karmic stuff, the, the more powerful it gets, the more potency is there, the more availability is there. Because if, if there isn't this continual preoccupation with me, 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 and what I should and what I'm not and what I could be and what I'm going to do next going on, there's this huge reserve of capacity to sensitively respond to what's happening, what's coming up around us. So these beings are enormous resources. Now the quality of, of you know, Margapuja and Sangha and um, I don't want to be blowing my own trumpet here, but it's not like it's just Sangha as a, as a not as a group of people, but as a particular aspiration vehicle, you know, and a, and a commitment vehicle and a renunciation vehicle. What the, even what those themes mean to us? The fact that we can aspire—it's not just all hopeless and so what and you know, what's the point? We can aspire. You know? We can commit. We can say, oh, "I'm not going to do this. I'm going to do that." We can do that. We can put effort in. We can persist. We can do that. That's that's there. It is. That's that's the the seed. That's the sangha kernel. That's the seed of it. So you're just developing that quality. That's the basic generative core. You know, within all this, and you keep, keep practicing, practicing it, practicing it.
And then the what can occur when you get the gatherings or even just kind of a devotional sense is, is something that devotional sense is also very important. Um, again, something I never thought I'd ever experience. Not never been a religious person, never had any belief in God. Uh, didn't have to convert to Buddhism because I never anything anyway. Yeah. But um, devotional sense is something whereby the me sense is something that you you put behind the aspiration sense. It's not like I want, but but first thing you prioritize is the values, the virtues, the truth, the proper way of doing things, the responsibility, the sense of integrity, and the personhood comes behind that. You know, we're not living life from the personality point. You're not ignoring a personality, but that's that's in the van. That's kind of following on. That's that's which willing to be shaped by the aspiration vehicle. And the devotion is just that. Devotion is just recognizing the qualities of our aspiration, putting them in front and letting the person sit behind that. that. That is devotion. Now, whether you want to use God or Kuan Yin or Buddha or Ajahn Mahabur or Ajahn Man or, as the thing that shapes your aspiration vehicle, it gives it a point, gives it a figurehead, is entirely up to you, of course. And I guess why beings like, you know, Ajahn Sumedho, Ajahn Chah saying there's nobody here, is to make it clear that, you know, they as people are not your figurehead. You know, it's not about devotion to a person, but you can use a person's image to trigger the meaning of that person. Oh, this is the the loving or the wise or the always accepting or the the still or the deep, you know? It triggers your meanings. You've got something there, helps to shape, give your aspiration vehicle a particular shape. And that's what you tune into. And you can use them as a trigger for that. And that makes it very safe if we do that skillfully. Because, of course, that the what... Um, where problems can occur is when the devotion to the teacher becomes a personal thing and uh, then you get uh, kinds of attachments and transferences and even abuse in that that, that uh, relationship. So you don't want to do that. So having a nobody, someone who isn't there, that makes it quite useful, safe. Then it's like using it as a mirror for your aspiration. And to me, what 
what's made that possible is the fact that there's something not just theoretical, like, you know, okay, Jesus, whatever, you know, think of Jesus. Obviously, I had to, when I was at school, we had religious education, so I think of Jesus and, yeah, you know, okay, maybe it's true, maybe it's not true. Well, we had a hard time. Yeah, really, well, yeah, okay, uh, intellectually, um, sometimes, you know, the suffering this person went through, you feel a sense of pathos. And uh, was it worth it? <laughs> I don't know. But devotion didn't happen. They're just, just, uh, just, just a, uh, a person, a unique person perhaps, but maybe he had some truth. Um, but you know, some, somehow, though one doesn't have a disrespect for something, one also says, well, so what? You know, that was 2,000 years ago, and so what? What's that got to do with me? Um, but the value of living beings is that there's also the kind of a, a connection that occurs energetically because of their living presence. You know, that you can feel that energy. And it's the energy there that, you know, that, that, that almost, almost energetically helps to rewire. So this is all part of what makes lineage important its own sense and it gets encoded so that rather like you know when you you go um, to a place where you were born you feel a certain set of memories or you bring your wedding photos out and you stick them on you know certain sets of perceptions and feelings come up you know so they they, you get these, these icons these encode particular sets of perceptions. So this is where, you know, you just, the Buddha himself said it is it's worthwhile to go to the place where one was went forth, uh, when one met a teacher, when one realized a, a level of insight or a level of awakening. It is of great value to go to such places because as you go there, it's like that place where you had that realization, that comes back. And this is what stupas are about. He said, this is worthwhile to do. These are not just um, sentimental experiences, but um, almost like they carry the DNA of your practice. They carry your, you know, your, the imprint of it is there, your experience. So one can, you know, just having like pictures on a shrine or a stupa, then... If you really use it skillfully, it carries this uh, this this value with it, sense in it, and this is also what can link a whole community over large span of time and over geographical distance. Just that those those images can help in that way. So you get a whole body builds up around uh, these encoded images. And perceptions and meanings. What we're doing, you know, in uh, Dhamma practice is more than just sort of tidying up the shop. It's like you're turning 
the whole thing inside out. It's not just moving the furniture around in the house. It's actually turning the whole house inside out. It's like turning it over. So it's not just becoming a better person, but also really turning the whole experience of personhood, turning inside out. Who is this? Who lives here? Who's thinking? Who did that happen to? Who's aware of anything? Who feels things? Who's the owner of these emotions? Not that we ever find answers to that, but that's exactly the point. Um, as you contemplate, and more on an intellectual level, you just contemplate and you, you draw your awareness to these places where intentions arise, where contacts land. And you, there isn't anybody there. So we start in that way to um, wear out the process where selfhood gets established, which is between something happens to me and therefore I say something. Uh, A thought happens to me, therefore I do something. Um, A sound comes into my ears, therefore I rise up to it. So the me object, things land on, triggers off I do. And of course every I do triggers off the results. It's called karma vipaka, cause and effect. Everything I say or do, there's a kind of, oh, I just did that. I get an impression of, well, that wasn't very good, was it? (laughs) You know, or, oh, I must do more of that. You know, cause and effect. Every every impulse, every intention gives rise to a result. That result becomes the ground for the next intention. And at that place where contact or the thing lands, and where intention arises, that ground that's called the upadi or the structure, the substructure of self. It's the ground from which intentions arise and from which impressions land and we bounce something lands we bounce something comes in we bounce yeah and it's this bouncy trampoline between contact and intention that is experienced as me i'm being affected therefore hmm? now if you f- focus that particular place you say yeah there are responses yeah there's impressions isn't anybody there maybe that doesn't sound so what but because there isn't anybody there the whole emotional drama and engagement around that area lessens it's just like it's less me, less intense, less desperate, less important, less 
tragic, less anything, you know. It's just that. And that takes the bounce out. It's just that sense of dispassion. And we're not faking it. Like you really, you know, not trying to even not think or not react. We're just recognizing, first of all, there isn't anybody doing that. You don't have to be somebody who doesn't do it. Just notice it like that. And just that lessening of the sense of self at that particular place. And it's an emotional sense. And it's got to get it right sense. And it's, oh, what will they think if I get it wrong sense. And have I done well enough? And, well, that wasn't very good. And it's all those things. You're just kind of becoming more equanimous at that place. And we can do that when we've got a reasonable... You know, when the sealer, when the morality is good enough, so we're not frightened or furtive or guilty or, or trying to bluff our way out of things. When the samadhi is clear, so there's some sense of one's mind is continually stumbling over, you know, aggressive instincts or greed or lust or something, you know. And then through that purity, you have this possibility. And I think really only through that purity you get the possibility of bringing this, this real dispassionate awareness to that place of me. And if it's living in a pure way and there's a sense of clarity about it, there's nothing to prove, there's nothing to defend. There's just little, you know, blemishes and reactions and the activity and getting hurt and feeling joy. And yeah, it's nothing. Like everybody's doing this. Now that actually, this, the quality of dispassion of that place, rather than fixing it, that's the bit to get. It's not about becoming a better self. It's really just that relaxing, the fixing intensities, the judgmental qualities around that place, the need to be something, you know, the kindness, gentleness, steadiness, just, just like just calming that thing down. You don't have to bounce. It's really important as we meditate because you don't want to spend hours winding yourself up you're getting more and more reactive more and more critical more and more things you've got to be if you don't do that you know that is that is not meditation <laughs> that is obsession it's con- totally contradictory to what we're trying to do or bring around it's the cooling not the deepening of the flames, increasing the flames. It's the healing, not creating more wounds. So the dispassion is so important, and equanimity and what supports that, self-acceptance, kindness, steadiness, seeing it through, not jumping into reactions, just staying with it. You know, the energy will then settle. Or calm down. As it calms, as it calms, as it settles, it becomes smoother. There's really less to jump up for. 
less need to jump up, less to jump up for. And what starts to occur is some of your big jumps start just kind of getting lesser. Your jumping up into your head tends to calm down. You don't just jump up to ideas and thoughts. Jumping up into the emotions takes a little bit longer. Get less kind of, you know, defensive or reactive. And that steadies down. And the jumping up into your body starts to calm down too. So you get less of the kind of tightening, you know, or or shielding or reaching out. And it's those patterns that really are the, the dynamic that create all these folds and creases in the mind. It's it being held in that torsion, in that that's what generates this sense of self for good or for bad, generally a mixture. So with the dispassion, the cooling of that, you know, this is where we're we're coming out. That's practice, isn't it? It's just like that. With someone like Ajahn Chah would say, you know, the only place of practice is at that place. It doesn't matter if you're sitting, standing, walking, chopping logs. The place of practice is that place, that what I'm calling the, the bounce area. That's where you stay. That's where you keep your wisdom faculty open at that place. And there's a real sense of, you know, this is where beings realize truth. This is where beings let go. It doesn't matter about the outward appearances. This this inner core of practice. When we come to something like this, oh yeah, that's, yes, I can join up to a, something that's doing that. I can join up to that and I let the form shape up around that. So it's safe, it's comfortable, it's okay. It's not the greatest thing in the world. I've got a, you know, it's not a mission thing. It's a reasonable, you know, human thing. It's not an ideological uh, force one's signing up to. Uh, it's people who are trying to find that place with all its upheavals and its wounding and its defensiveness and just spread this quality of coolness, steadiness right there. And the beauty of that is it's actually, um, you know, it's... it's uh, Every day, every moment, isn't it? And probably our, you know, what we call our meditation practice is just doing what it takes to build up the resources to do that and clearing away all the stuff that gets in the way of that. You know, like, it's just, you know, who I am, what I'm doing. Just kind of find a way to get, just sort that out so I can get to the point. Of this uh, the bounce point somehow incredibly human, incredibly ordinary, 
Um, everybody's doing it. It's not a matter of culture, religion, gender, anything. It's just at that point. And yet, around that point, these forms can cohere. So I think this is something, to me, is really worth honouring because it is not divine, it is not otherworldly, it is not miraculous, it's not supernatural. We are honouring human, the core of being human. And, you know, and uh, opening that out, revealing that, clearing it. So tonight being this um, Marga Puja, hope something that's been useful for you, said something that might have triggered something for you, but if we can, um, the idea is to make that commitment to this occasion, this evening, and obviously if you're just visiting then you see what time you have, you know, but the, the form will be here until midnight and uh, trying to just uh, stay with that respect that, make use of it. And uh, around just before midnight, people gather and we can um, chant a dedication to the commemoration of Marga Puja and then we'll go out to the stupa with uh, incense or candles or hearts and uh, circumambulate the stupa. So that will be the commemoration.